God used prophecy to prepare room in this preacher's heart many years ago. It was prophecy, the study of the future that God used to get to me and draw me in. My sister Michelle showed up at our at the trailer that I lived in with my first wife and told me about a book that she'd read on prophecy. And, and I was always a big history buff, so this was like history in reverse. So I went and got the book and read the book. And I mean, this, it just drew me in, all these promises, uh, all these fulfilled prophecies and the ones that were to come were just, I was enamored with them. I had late nights uh, with a joint in one hand and a, the book in the other and probably 700 Club on the... TV, wouldn't tell anybody. But God was using all that stuff to draw me in. I even became conversant uh, in discussing prophecy as a non-Christian. In time, I came to discover this truth, and it is this. That the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Have you ever read that? I want you to think about what that means. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's what Revelation chapter 19 verse 10 says. And here's the point. In other words, prophecy was never intended, watch this, to draw us to prophecy. Prophecy was never intended to draw us to prophecy. It's intended to draw us to Jesus. And if all prophecy does is cause you to study more prophecy, you are miserably failing the point. It's all pointed to Jesus because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And why believe the prophecies of Jesus' second coming? Why believe the fact that Christ is coming again and all of that scripture that says he's going to? Well, one good reason is because of all the prophecies that predicted he would come the first time. And they all came true. I mean, when you think about it, there aren't any prophecies foretelling the details of the births of Muhammad and the birth of Islam. There are no prophecies whatsoever of the founders of Buddhism or any of the other major world systems and cults and religions There are no prophecies about the birth of their founders, but there are many prophecies about Jesus. They all were made, they were all fulfilled in Christ. And every prophecy of Jesus, his coming, his life, the persecution of our Savior and his death and resurrection, every one of them was intended to cause you and me to prepare him room in our hearts. Like the Christmas hymn, there's room in my heart, Lord Jesus. There's room in my heart for thee, so to speak. So if that's true, these prophecies, first of all, I I want you to notice the prophecies and even the occurrences around their fulfillment and the affirmation of these prophecies, they they call you who are thoughtful to believe. That's what these these do. They're they're calls to you and I who are thoughtful. You're already thinking about these things, but you're not quite there. To believe. I mean, when you consider the odds of all of these things coming true, Matthew's uh, favorite expression 
In fact, he uses it about a dozen times as this one. It's, the first one's found in verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Matthew uses this expression about a dozen times. And the very first fulfillment of this expression is in the next verse, verse 23. And here's the very first prophecy in Matthew's gospel that came to pass. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name, say it, Emmanuel, which means what? God's with us. This is a word verbatim prophecy of, uh, of, of Isaiah. Seven centuries earlier, except for that little addendum, which means God is with us. Isaiah doesn't tell us that. Matthew interprets that for us. But here it is. The, the virgin shall conceive, bear a son. You'll call his name God with us. You'll call his name Emmanuel. There are over three Hundred prophecies of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. His birth, his life, his suffering, his death, his resurrection. Over 300 of them in the Old Testament. In his uh, biography of this, I read very early in my own experience, More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell, which, you know, which later would be, the, the, would be Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. Same thing, skeptics studying the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus and being convinced by the prophecies. It's true. It's compelling. I have to believe. I can relate to those guys. In fact, McDowell in his book quotes an apologist of his day, Peter Stoner, who, who did the calculation for, uh, for what... Just eight of those 300, not all 300, just eight of those 300 Old Testament prophecies given between 400 and 1,500 years before Jesus ever came. If just eight of them, with any one given man, were to all come true, the odds of that happening are one and 10 to the 17th power. That's one and a 10 with 17 zeros behind it. And so, because our brains can't get around that thing, he, uh, Stoner then went on to imagine, this would be like taking the state of Texas and filling it up with two feet of silver dollars. What else are you going to fill up the state of Texas with? <laughs> and then, uh, and you, and then uh, mark one, one, just one of those coins, and then blindfold any given individual and tell him he can go as far into the state of Texas as he wishes. He can bend over, he can, he can dig down, he can do whatever, but he's gonna just, he just gets to pick one coin blindfolded. Those are the odds of all those things happening in just eight of those 300 prophecies. And yet all 300 of them were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And those prophecies come true in Jesus began to draw me in. Now listen to this. Soon I wasn't making room for prophecy. I was making room for Jesus. And this is where some of you need to be this morning. You're thoughtful. You're thinking about these things. It's compelling to you. And you need to take the next natural God-invoked-in-your-heart step and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you are out here saying, "This, this is amazing, but... Of course, with God, he can do anything, right? On September 6, 1982, I wasn't convicted of the fulfillment of the prophecies of David and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah, as compelling as they were. I sat at my kitchen table and I was convicted of my sin. 
I was convicted that I had rejected God, that I had not placed my faith in Jesus Christ, and I humbled my heart, and I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. It was compelling to me, and I believed. And if you're a thoughtful individual this morning, you, and you, you can't deny the compelling evidence behind these many prophecies all fulfilled in Christ. Here's my advice. Make room for him. Believe in him. Because this calls those of you who are thoughtful to believe. It also comforts you who are sinful to hope. Now, I know what you're thinking. Aren't we all sinful? Yes, it's true. We're all sinful, but let's be honest. I mean, some of you, you're like really sinful. Do you remember, some of you have been around long enough, do you remember the old Christmas lights that your mom would get out every, every, every year about this time? They all looked something like this. And then you had, to, you had to roll them out. Do you remember that? You had to roll them out because if one light was bad, the whole thing didn't work. Remember that? We would have three or four strands throughout the living room in our home with all of us little ones pulling each one out. Making, because again, if there was one or two, none of it worked. It was so maddening. The genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1 is kind of like that string of Christmas lights. And there's some really bad bulbs here, okay? And they threaten to short-circuit the whole thing. I mean, just look at some of it. At the very beginning, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, twins, by Tamar. If you're wondering, that was Judah's daughter-in-law. And then it goes on, you skip all the way down to verse 5, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, she was a harlot. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, we heard about her just a couple, she was the Moabite. And Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah otherwise known as Bathsheba, not named here. Rather, the writer puts in the mighty warrior of David's, Uriah. You skip all the way down to verse 16. It says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, feminine pronoun there, to just to point directly to Mary, that is, Jesus didn't come by Joseph. He came by Mary, of whom, that is, Jesus was born. Now, let me ask you, what do you think, if you look at this list, what do Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba and Mary all have in common, except besides the fact that they're all moms. The answer is all of them, including Ruth and Mary, all of them were shrouded in suspicion, founded or unfounded, of sexual sin. Every one of them. Remember Ruth laying down at the feet of Boaz, had to get her out of there in the morning because who knows who could be talking, right? Even Joseph assumed the worst in his wife before it was proven by the angel otherwise. 
Why do I share these things with you? Because the sordid drama of political and entertainment figures that are dropping like flies every single week, and many of them every week, leaves you asking the question, who's next? Who's next? And if you're like me, you're also wondering, you know, who's guilty and who's not guilty? Because the presumption of innocence has been thrown out the window, right? Who, which ones are guilty? Which ones are not guilty? Now think about this list here, okay? And think about those people in the entertainment community and the political community. Which ones, the guilty or the not guilty, would God choose? You want to know what the answer is? He'd choose them both. He did then. He does now. He always will. And aren't you glad? It's the reason Spurgeon said, I'm sure glad God chose me before I was born because he sure wouldn't have chosen me after I was born. <laughs> Here is hope for you to prepare him room. Those of you whose lives are so messed up, you're the busted bulbs. You're the ones who short-circuited everything in your family and everything, and you just think you're absolutely worthless. You're, you, you have no worth. I've got news for you. You're right, you have no worth, but neither do I. It's the worthiness of the Lamb that gives us any worth. It's his righteousness upon us. Listen, I don't care how messed up your life is. That's what this Christmas story is all about. This comforts the sinful. It says, I am with you. I will forgive you. I'll put you back on the string. I'll light you up. That's what God does. It gives you hope. So we embrace that. It also gives, it comforts you who are scared. It not comforts, rather confronts you who are skeptical to repent. That's what this story is. It confronts those of you who are skeptical to repent. And I want to focus for a few moments on these chief priests and scribes. So you've got to make your way over to chapter 2 for a moment. It says, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, and then Matthew just kind of gives, gives, where the, kind of gives a wink as to where they're from. Wise men from the east. They came to Jerusalem. They're saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we come to worship him. And Herod the king heard this. He was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And let me, well, when Herod was troubled, everybody was troubled. Heads rolled. And he assembled all the chief priests and scribes. That's where I want your attention. Of the people, he in, inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they, they told him, well, that, that's simple enough. Micah tells us, in Bethlehem of Judah, or Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you've come, and when you found him, bring, bring me word that I may come and worship him. Liar. 
Now, Matthew chapter 2 has no less than three incarnation, birth of Jesus, fulfilled prophecies. One finds its affirmation in these scribes and chief priests, because Jesus has already been born, okay? He's already there in Bethlehem. But they're just sort of figuring it out. That is, they knew it. They knew the truth of it. These chief priests and scribes knew precisely where the Messiah was to be born. And you get the impression from the reading, it was nothing for them to pull that up. I mean, if you think about it, the king says to them, hey, I got some guys coming from the east, blah, 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 blah. Where's the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem and Ephrathah. I mean, that's, that's what Micah 5, 2 says. How giddy would you be? with excitement if you were a, a Bible scholar like these guys. But as, that, as has been said, it's not how much you've been through the Bible, but how much the Bible has been through you. These scholars knew their Bible's authors, but they didn't know the author of the Bible. If they had, they'd have hitched their train to those magi and made their way to Bethlehem, and there's nothing that says that happened. Think about that. Think about that. Years ago, in my uh, first church I pastored, there was a gal in the church. Her name was Barbara, because you wanted everybody to call her Barbara. We'd won her husband to Christ. So she came along for the ride. She was brilliant. Her IQ was off the charts. In fact, there was never a Sunday school or any teaching venue that she didn't have the answer and pinpoint answer every time. She knew it. She was always right. She was always right. But there was something about her character. There was something about her cynicism her critical spirit, her joylessness. Just there was no adornment of the gospel in her life. And we, and we called her to repent, and to this day, I don't think she ever has repented. It's not real, so to speak. And some of you are like Barbara. You love knowledge. You love, you're all about knowing theology without knowing the theos of theology. God! You need to prepare him room today. Let your work in the scripture lead you to the worship of the Savior. Listen to me. Anything less, those of you who, and I, I mean, if you're like me, you love the Bible, you love the study of the Bible, you love the study of theology, but if that doesn't lead to doxology, if that doesn't lead to worship, if that doesn't lead to a life adorned with the gospel of God, it is at best obnoxious. Nobody wants to be around you. And at worst, you're a blatant hypocrite. So this Christmas message confronts those of you who are skeptical. You've got the knowledge, you've got the theology, but you don't have the theos of theology, God, in the person of Jesus. Or you might have him, but you're just so full of yourself 
and your right answers. But it's not translating in your life. Don't be obnoxious. And don't be hypocritical. Embrace the knowledge. Embrace the theology. But more importantly, embrace the God of it all in Jesus Christ. And repent. Fourth thing I want you to know, this compels all of us to worship, doesn't it? This should compel all of us to worship. You pick it up where I left off in verse 9. After listening to the king, the magi went their way. And behold, the star that they'd seen when it arose, when it went before them until they, it came to rest over the place where the child was. And, and they saw the star. When they saw the star, they, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. By far, all of the characters in the Christmas story, the magi, are the most mysterious and intriguing, aren't they? Who are these guys? Are, are they magi? Are they wise men? Or are they kings? As one writer put it, it's complicated. We do have them to thank, do we not, for gift giving. I mean, they, they started that whole tradition, and after all, that's what Christmas is all about, amen? I mean, I remember when I, I, I wish I had a picture of this. I mean, I, I came from a large family. I have a large family. I was number eight out of nine, so all my older brothers and sisters, they were already off and starting their own families, living in different states, and so Christmas time was so huge to this young guy. All, I was going to see my big brothers and sisters. They were going to come back. And, and I loved it because they all came back bearing gifts. And I remember one picture was, I'm telling you, they were stacked all the way to the top. We had a picture where you could barely see the star on the top of the tree. That's it. It was pretty cool, but mostly cool because I knew a lot of those gifts were for me. And again, that's what it's all about, right? I mean, you got Herod here in this story. I mean, Herod left room for nobody else but himself. He was so, he was so paranoid. He was, he was a megalomaniac. That is, he wanted all the power. He was an egomaniac. He wanted it all to be about himself. In fact, when he was dying, he left instruction that uh, a contingency of, indi uh, uh, of notable individuals from Jericho would be killed in the amphitheater at the time of his death just so that somebody would be crying at the time. And you say, oh my goodness, how self-centered. Well, you know, what do you think about it? You think about Jesus at Christmas time? I think all of us have a little egomaniac in us. We just don't want to admit it. Who are these magi anyway? Who are these guys? Are they magi? Are they wise men? Are they, are they kings? By the way, uh, Matthew calls them wise men. Some of your Bibles say magi. The, the, the Persian word, it, it has a Persian origin, this word. So that does take it out east. And scholars have been chasing these guys all over the map. They chased them down to Egypt with Joseph. And they've chased them over to Daniel's day and the courts of Nebuchadnezzar. And in fact, some people believe that Daniel may have evangelized 
this segment of the Persian Empire, and what you have here, these wise men, are basically the remnant of Daniel's influence. I don't know. What is clear is the business of their travels in verse 2, we have come to worship him. And that's exactly what they did, isn't it? I do think it's fascinating that the star that apparently led them to Jerusalem disappeared for a time as they approached Jerusalem. Why is that? I think the reason is because prophecy had to be fulfilled that this megalomaniac, this paranoid king, would do his dastardly deed and fulfill the prophecy of Jeremiah and the slaughter of the innocents. And it's recorded there in verse 18. We don't need to read it. But who are these guys? Were they magi? Were they wise men? Were they kings? Kings. I mean, that sounds so silly, doesn't it? I know. That's because, you know, we sing the hymn, We Three Kings. But wait a minute. There are a number of church fathers and historians that actually believe these men were connected to royalty, and they didn't just pull that out of thin air. Look what the scripture says in Isaiah. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Nations shall come to your light. And watch this. Kings, to the brightness of your rising, they shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news and praises to the Lord. You say, where's the myrrh? Remember, the Old Testament didn't focus so much on the death of Jesus, but on his glory. It does focus on his death in Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, but there's a lot of glory there. But look at that. What do you think? Maybe you should think of it this way. As magi, the magi were known as astrologers, studies of the celestial stars. As magi, they would have discovered the one who not only could read the stars, he created every one of them and named them all. As wise men, they would have discovered the one who is not only wise, but the very personification of wisdom itself. And as kings, they would have come upon the one who wasn't just a king, but he was the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And what do you do? What do you do when you meet one who is the creator of all things, who has wisdom beyond the stars? and is the sovereign over all things. What do you do when you meet such a king? You worship. That's what you do. You worship. Let's stand. Just
Aren't you glad we don't put up lights like that anymore? <laughs> the other day, um, around Thanksgiving, our family, we, took, we take over the church at Thanksgiving, so nobody else tried to take over Thanksgiving. Because <laughs> when we take over the church, we take it over. And uh, we'd eaten, and, and uh, if you haven't noticed, many of you, over in the fellowship hall, where you'll be welcome to in a little bit, there's lights that are strung, very nicely, nice little accent there. And uh, they're up on, a, they're on two tension wires. And uh, we got done with eating, and we made our way over to the gymnasium, played some games, and one of, one of our little ones escaped. <laughs> and he made his way up into the loft where Pastor Paul's uh, office is, and he found one of those tension wires, and he just thought the best thing to do was start pulling on that thing. And it's all, we got it all on video because everything's recorded around here. You, just, you can just see the lights just going. And they start falling and breaking and busting all over the place. It was a catastrophe, a total mess. It took us forever to clean it up. And once the lights were all restrung and Mark helped out, we got in all this. And, but when he plugged them in, busted lights and all, they worked. And some of you are like those busted bulbs. That's your life. That's how you describe it. It doesn't matter whether it's sexual sin or just being an idiot as a sinner and going against everything you know. Your life is a mess. And you don't think that God would ever string you back into his plan. Don't believe that lie. God loves you. He loves you the way you are, loves you too much to keep you that way, but he will put you in his string, and he'll light you up again if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So however God has been working in your heart today, respond to him and prepare him room.